Father, once again, we pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, a rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the summer before my uh, fifth grade year of school, our family moved to uh, the city of Evansville, Indiana. And it was a, um, a move that meant that I didn't have, you know, any friends. I had to make all new friends and, you know, work through that. And it ended up being a great move. But that fifth grade year was difficult. You know, the feeling of going to a new school. You don't really know many people and trying to get into the groups and things. And uh, for some reason, there were a couple of guys who felt like it was their life mission to um, bully me. And so every day on the playground, virtually, uh, be after me. And, uh, you know, it was miserable, to be honest with you. But there was one kid who I didn't really know that well. His name was Billy. I still remember that. Who, I guess, felt sorry for me or was just, just didn't like those guys. But he continually came and defended me. He was, uh, he was just a fighter. And, and he would chase them off, and he would fight with them, and he would defend me. And I can't tell you how grateful I was to see him come onto the scene, uh, to see him appear, to rescue me. And even now, I have these fond feelings for him, even though we've completely lost touch since fifth grade. But there are times, and when, there are times when that's exactly what we need. We need someone to come and to rescue us. We're in a vulnerable place, and, and that's, that's the solution that we need. But sometimes that's not the right solution. And there's something of that in this story that we've read this morning of Jesus in the garden. Peter, seeing what's about to happen, decides he needs to act. He needs to defend Jesus. And so he pulls out his sword, he swings it, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. John tells us his name is Malchus. It is amazing to me that that moment doesn't incite a bloodbath. I mean, everybody's tense. Everybody, it's dark. There is a lot of, of, of tension in the whole space. The guys have just fallen down after Jesus said, I am he. There's so much going on here, and everybody is on edge. And here is Peter cutting off a guy's ear, and in most circumstances, that would mean chaos. I'm convinced that as soon as, Judah, as, soon as Peter lights the wick, Jesus snuffs it out. And he snuffs it out by saying to Peter, put your sword away. That's not why we're here. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus actually heals Malchus's ear. And I think that that moment is, is a love note, another one of those love notes that Jesus sends to his, those who are consider themselves his enemies. This is a love note to these people standing there in front of him who expect him Not to heal someone who's come to arrest him, but to fight with them. To take advantage of this moment. It's a love note to Annas and Caiaphas, who are the leaders of of the the temple. And to say to them, do you really want to do this? Is this really where you want to, to take your life? It's a love note to these people about who Jesus is. One more time to say, this is what I'm about. But I also think... It's a note of clarification for the disciples. 
I think in this moment, Jesus is saying to his disciples who are watching all this unfold, not just Peter, but all the others as well, watching this unfold, and he's saying to them, let me tell you, let me show you one more time, this is what my kingdom is about. It's not about swords. And so he says to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? All you have to do is read the Gospels and you can see the disciples completely misunderstand the mission of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus has to clarify, this is why I've come. This is what I'm going to do. This is what the kingdom is about. And over and over and over again, they keep missing it. There are places where you can sort of sense Jesus' exasperation with them. How long? How many times do I have to tell you? And now here in the garden, he gives them one more lesson. This is what the kingdom is about. This is what my mission is about. It's not about swords. It's about drinking the cup. Now, Peter loves Jesus. Peter loves him. Peter loves everything about Jesus. He doesn't understand Jesus, but he loves Jesus. I'm convinced of that. And I think Peter thinks he's doing the right thing in the same way that Mark and the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus has a conversation with them about who's, who do people say that I am? And they say, you're the Messiah. And, and Jesus says, that's right. Now let me tell you what it means for me to be the Messiah. And he goes on to talk about his suffering and his death. And Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, don't talk like that. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, not Peter, but get behind me, Satan. Because Peter doesn't understand the nature of Jesus' mission. He doesn't understand the nature of the kingdom. And it's a sense, it's as if Jesus is saying to him, Peter, don't you think I'm going to do what I keep telling you I'm going to do? It shouldn't surprise you in this moment after all the things that I've said to you that has brought us to this moment. You know, there, there are discussions about whether Jesus' words here about the sword are, are a call to, to uh, pacifism or a, at least a call to peacemaking. And, and I think that, that there is something of that here. I think there are probably other places where you could have even more discussions about that. But I do think that it is Jesus at the very least is saying to us here and saying to them, this is not how my kingdom purposes are accomplished. And he needs to keep telling them because they don't get it, and we need to keep hearing it because we don't get it either. Now, there have been times in the history of the church where the church has said, let's take up swords and let's fight to defend Jesus and the kingdom. But we don't tend to do that. And yet, there is something in us that we are continually tempted to think that we have to defend Jesus, we have to defend the kingdom. And we often are tempted to use the same tactics that everyone else uses to defend and and move forward whatever they want to use. And in one way or another, it involves an essence of violence. Now again, we don't typically move toward physical violence, but let's be honest, there are times when we use our words in a violent way. There's times when, when we, 
we create a spirit of fear so that people will listen to us and people will engage with us and people will follow us. Sometimes we use threats. Sometimes we exaggerate things so that people will get on board with us. Sometimes it's in the spirit that we exude of contempt and hatred. And this doesn't mean that our doormats. It doesn't mean that, that we roll over about sin and evil in the world. It just means that we begin to understand the nature of how the, and the kingdom of how sin and evil is addressed. And I think it's the same way Jesus addresses it. Not with what looks like earthly power, but by going to a cross. And that's hard for us because we agree with the Apostle Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the, the cross looks like foolishness. And we don't want to look foolish. The cross is vulnerability and we don't want to be vulnerable. The cross is about self-denial and we really don't want to live in self-denial. And yet as Kosoke Koyama writes, when Paul talks about being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which what he is saying is that the very foundational characteristic of the kingdom and of being a disciple and an apostle is self-denial, a vulnerability, of surrender and sacrifice. And I think that's just what Jesus is, is saying to Peter and the disciples, and ultimately they get it. Ultimately, it comes to them when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. I think they remember the words of the prophet, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's the nature of the kingdom and how we live in a world that uses very different tactics to accomplish its purposes. You remember that this, Jesus says this cup is given to him by the Father. This is not a cup that, that's given, handed to him by the people surrounding him in the garden there. It's not a cup handed to him by Annas or, or Caiaphas or, or Pilate or the Roman government. This is a cup, Jesus says, that my Father has given me. I think that's significant. Jesus uses that same language of a cup when, he, when he's praying in the garden just a little bit before this. In his prayer, he says, Father, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. I know that what's ahead of me is going to be difficult. This cup you're handing me is going to be so difficult. If there's any way to accomplish the purposes that we have without me drinking the cup, would that be possible? Jesus has a choice. If Jesus is, is human, as the scriptures tell us he is, and if Hebrews is right that Jesus faces every temptation that we do, then he is faced with a choice here. And in that choice is really the nature of father and son is at risk and at stake. Is Jesus going to go the way of the father? Is Jesus going to embrace the way that the father, son, and the spirit have designed for the redemption of all creation that they designed from the foundation of the world? In this moment, is Jesus going to choose to do that in the way they designed it?
It's really no different than the temptation that comes to Jesus in the wilderness. Every temptation is, in a sense, calling Jesus to take a shortcut. To accomplish the purposes, to get to the end that he's heading to in an easier way. Without drinking the cup. And he says no then, and he says no here. Because Jesus and the Father have a relationship of love. You know, I think sometimes we are so self-absorbed that, that we think that, that we are the center of everything it means for God to love. We're the only thing that God loves. And God does love us. He loves us with an everlasting love that never ends and never wavers. But that love comes from the love of the Father and the Son. If the, if the relationship between father and son is broken, that is going to affect us. And in this moment, as Jesus is put to the test, as the evil one is tempting him again and again, Peter swings the sword and, and the evil one's saying, here's a way out. Jesus' love for the father supersedes any kind of shortcut. And it is in essence, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, don't take away from me this moment when I have the opportunity to express my love for the Father in the purest, deepest way possible. But there is also a sense in which Peter's not just being used to tempt Jesus, there is also a sense in which Peter is being used to tempt the Father. Peter, there's, there's a sense in which Peter kind of intrudes into the place that the Father ha, ha, alone has in defending Jesus. Peter seems to look at the situation and say, well, it doesn't look like God's going to do anything here, so I better act. No one else, God's not defending his son, I better act. And in doing that, Peter's intruding in a place that, that's really reserved for the Father. We, we have that kind of thing with, other, with relationships in our lives. You know, a, a spouse or a child where we feel like it's a part of our role to be there for them and, and, to, and to be that that presence and place for them, and it just feels wrong when someone else intrudes into that place that really is reserved for us or our closest friends. There's a place where we have a unique relationship with people, and, and when other people come in and, and try to take over that role, it, it just doesn't feel right. And I think there's a sense of that happening here. Of course, the question is, it doesn't, I can see why Peter acts. It doesn't look like Jesus, God is doing anything. It doesn't look like the Father is defending Jesus in any way. But that's simply because we don't understand what it means for the Father to defend Jesus. We think that the Father defending Jesus in the same way, it's the same thing as what we want the Father to do in defending us, and that is remove all evil, uh, remove all pain, remove all struggles, remove all difficulties, and make life easy and comfortable. And when God does that, in our minds we're thinking, okay, now God's coming to my defense. He's removed all the barriers. He's removed all the obstacles. He's removed all the temptations. God is coming to our def my defense. But if God does that in this moment, 
If God removes Jesus from this situation, he's not just removing Jesus from the situation. He is removing the possibility of the redemption of all creation. He is also breaking the very bond, the very, the very unity of Father, Son, and Spirit in the plan that they have to redeem all of creation. And for the Father to remove all of the pain, to remove the cross, to remove the struggle, would go against the grain of the very purpose of Jesus coming. I think the evil one is tempting the Father to do that. There is no closer relationship in existence in the world than the Father, than the eternal Father and the eternal Son. Their, the love of their relationship is something that in our best relationships just scratches the surface of that. And the Father's heart is breaking to know what the Son is going through and is about to go through. And everything in His loving Father heart wants to stop it. But He loves the Father so deeply. He loves the Son so deeply. And He's so committed to their love together to accomplish the purpose of their love. That his defense of Jesus is not removing the cross. But it's letting him go to the cross. And not give in to the temptations of the evil one. And I wonder sometimes if there are moments in our lives when it feels like God is not there for us. When God is not defending us. When God is not helping us. And the reality is he's doing more for us than we realize Because to remove us would not be to help us, it would be to harm us. Because God's intent for the Son, God's intent for all of creation is to flourish in Him. The flourishing in Him sometimes means that we go through difficult experiences. And we go through rough times. And we face great temptations. But He's always there. Always with us. Helping us through if we will trust Him. And that's really our struggle. Is that deep inside, we're not sure God is good. We're not really sure God can be trusted. We're not really sure that God wants us to flourish. And that is ultimately the most severe and damaging result of sin in the world. That we are born with damaged receptors between us and God and we don't see God clearly. We don't understand God clearly. And the primary point of the cross is to repair and to restore those, that broken relationship and to show us who God is in all of His glory and goodness so that we will trust Him and find in Him flourishing and life abundant. See, we want to control life. We want to tell God what is right and best. And he keeps calling us to open our hands and to trust him. Even when we don't see it, even when we can't feel him, even when we can't we, can't, we don't seem to be experiencing him. Can we trust him that he's at work, 
that he's with us, that he knows what he's doing, that he's bringing us in his grace to flourishing and to life abundant. There is a sense in which Jesus is saying here to Peter, I don't need your help. I really don't need your help right now, Peter. The Father and I have got this. And the more, but the more I thought about that, the more I realized that maybe that's not true. Maybe that's not the full sense of this. Because I think the irony of this, this encounter between Peter and Jesus is, is not that Pete, Jesus doesn't need Peter's help, but that he does. He wants Peter's help. But what he wants is not Peter's sword. What he wants is Peter's prayers. The gospel writers tell us that as Jesus is praying in the garden before this event takes place with, the, with those who come to arrest him, he asks his disciples, and specifically Peter, James, and John, to pray with him. And they fall asleep. And Jesus comes back and he says, couldn't you watch with me one hour? Couldn't you pray with me one hour? Couldn't support you support me for one hour? And it's just almost as if Jesus looks at Peter and says, I don't need your sword now. I needed your prayers then. And the more I ponder that, the more I realize that Jesus is not just asking Peter and James and John to pray for him, but that the prayers that are needed are for them too. He says, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. And how is it that we come to the place where we can trust God and his love for us and his grace for us that we can walk with him through the difficult journeys of life, walk with him to be his witness in ways that seem counterintuitive and counterproductive to the way everybody else does things. How do we come to the place of trusting him? I'm convinced it's through the means of grace. Through prayer, the scriptures, worship, all of the ways that God has given us to give away what we have, to, to, to follow the road of self-denial and self-surrender by letting the Spirit fill us, by opening our hearts through the means of grace, that our minds, our hearts, our souls, every part of our being filled with Him. My prayer for us is that we will see what God has for us. That we will believe that God is good and trustworthy and that he is walking before us and behind us and with us through every moment. And that we will live lives so enamored with him, so surrendered to him willingly, lovingly, that we're directed and led and transformed by His Spirit. Father, we thank You. We thank You that 
Jesus drinks the cup. We thank you, Father, that in that act of love for you and for us, we have power and grace through your Spirit to drink whatever cup you hand us. Give us a passion for you that we might trust you more and more through your grace. Amen.